This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome RAND's Managing Director of Development, Lynn Slattery. For decades, leaders around the world have come to RAND to help address the most vexing issues challenging our time. And RAND's approach, of course, is rigorously and scrupulously nonpartisan, founded on rigor, stripped of speculation, and for the benefit and dedicated to promoting the public welfare. So when the Justice Department came to RAND for analysis of the costs and potential payoffs of correctional education programs, our team, including Lois, hunkered down to synthesize some 30 years of research and published some surprising foundings. You might say landmark foundings. They found the magnitude of savings from correctional, pardon me, from savings from a dollar spent on prison education programs versus the cost of recidivism and reincarceration was an astounding one to five ratio. Prison education is high impact, relatively low cost solution to a societal problem crowding prisons and affecting a disproportionate number of men of color caught in an infinitely revolving door. Since these landmark findings were published a few years ago, RAND continues to research topics related to education in prison, recidivism, and post-release employment. We're honored to be co-hosting our program, as I said, with the Michelson 20MM Foundation, established by Los Angeles philanthropist Dr. Gary K. Michelson and his wife Alyssa Michelson. The foundation is dedicated to transforming, learning, and improving access to educational opportunities that lead to meaningful careers. So now, please help me welcome Phil Kim, co-founder and president of the Michelson 20MM Foundation, to the stage for a few words. Thank you, everyone. Uh, On behalf of uh, the Michelson 20MM Foundation and Dr. Gary and Alia Michelson, we just want to thank you uh, so much for joining us here today. Um, At Michelson, we spend most of our time thinking about ways that we can elevate and empower traditional post-secondary students and instructors to access educational opportunities and really uh, meet their full potential. Um, But there may be no place uh, in which education can have a more uh, significant impact than in our prisons. Um, And we have true thought leaders from that space here with us tonight, and we want to maximize their time. So it's my pleasure to introduce this evening's moderator, an award-winning correspondent with a career spanning over two decades in Southern California, uh, currently covering criminal justice and public safety for KPCC, He has twice been awarded the Radio Journalist of the Year by the LA Press Club and has been recognized as a distinguished journalist by the LA Society of Professional Journalists, uh, among many, many other honors. Um, So we are very fortunate to have him with us uh, this evening. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Mr. Frank Stoltz. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me to be the moderator. I'm going to actually begin in an unusual fashion today, an unusual fashion. Uh, I'm going to start with what happened today. About three hours ago, I'm sitting in the Denny's near here, and two homeless people, a young man and a young woman, both white, sit in the booth next to me. They're obviously tired. Their clothes are ragged. They are dirty. I can smell them. I'm annoyed. The two take menus from the Asian-American waitress. She returns with water, and they order. The young man slumps down in the booth, head laid down on the seat. The waitress returns. You cannot sleep here. He lifts himself up. I'm not sleeping. They exchange words. Nothing too threatening, just some grumbling. The waitress returns with the security guard, an African-American woman. More words are exchanged. Again, nothing threatening, just grumbling. She orders the young man and young woman to leave Denny's. The injustices are big and small in America today, and I tell this story merely to point out class can define whether you're out of luck sometimes as much as race. But race will loom large in the discussion we are about to have. The darker you are, the tougher the road in America, indeed throughout a lot of the world. We will provide hope today. There are great people doing great things. Some are on stage. All of them are on stage. All on stage fit that category is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Award winning. And losing hope is not an option, really. We all know what Martin Luther King said long ago. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Something else happened today demonstrated that. I interviewed the man who runs Loyola Law School's Project for the Innocent at a place in Compton 
where a man was wrongfully convicted of attempted murder. The often unreliable but much vaunted eyewitness got it wrong, and the defense attorney, detectives, and prosecutors failed to do their work. After 20 years, Marco Contreras was finally released, but two decades of a man's life were marred beyond recognition, torn apart, and thrown away. So I'm at once angry and hopeful today, as anyone who lives in this country and has two eyes and two ears and a brain and a heart inevitably is. That's my rant. Let's focus now on the topic at hand. The power of education in turning around the lives of men and women caught up in the criminal justice system and the challenges in providing that education. This is not a new idea. In 1965, the Higher Education Act allowed prisoners to access Pell Grants. It was understood at the time that education reduced the chances of an inmate committing new crimes after he left and made for a more orderly prison. But as we all know, the last three decades of the 20th century brought a wave of draconian laws that left hundreds of thousands of young black men and, to a lesser extent, young Latinos locked up for long periods of time in prisons that offered few education programs. In 1994, in fact, Congress passed and President Clinton signed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, part of which revoked any Pell Grant funding for federal or state inmates. We do indeed have a great panel today, one that will inform and hopefully inspire action. Thinking and pondering is fine, but it's time we all did just a little bit more. Lois Davis is a senior policy researcher at RAND uh, and a professor of the Pardee RAND Graduate School. Her recent research uh, has focused on the intersection of public safety and public health. And of course, she's the co-author of this landmark RAND study recently released that looks at the advantages and challenges of educating inmates. Uh, in 1994, Kenyatta Leal, Leal was sentenced to life in prison and known simply as inmate H10983. He is the founding member and the first graduate of the Last Mile program. And Chris Redlitz is a co-founder of the Last Mile program and managing partner of Transmedia Capital, an early stage technology venture fund, a man who at one point couldn't or cared little about the criminal justice system, but now cares deeply about it. Uh, we're going to begin with you, Lois. Um, let's talk about the latest research uh, that you have conducted that looks again, uh, I guess in, in some ways is reminding us, because we knew in the 60s, of the value of education uh, and educating inmates. Well, just to provide a little bit of context, you mentioned the 1994 crime bill when it removed excluded inmates from being, having, being able to access Pell Grants. The effect of that was a dramatic reduction in participation in college programs, and and that really was um, critical for individuals to be able to kind of continue their educational and skills development. One of the things when we started our landmark study that you referenced was it was the first time under the Second Chance Act that there was a dedicated pot of money set aside to understand what's the effect of correctional education. We had just come out of the 2008 recession, and what had happened was that Many states had to cut, drastically cut their corrections budgets. And when you cut <coughs> budgets, the only place you have flexibility is programs. So I heard from a number of state correctional education directors who, who either had completely had their programs defunded or else had a dramatic reduction in budgets. So there was a real need for understanding what's the return on investment in these programs. And that was the context within which we undertook this study. So. And uh, what did you find in terms of uh, well, the return on investment? When we think about correctional education programs, we're talking about all the way from adult basic ed, remedial education, to GED, high school equivalency programs, to college programs, to vocational training. <coughs> and what we were able to show, looking at 30 years of research and using a meta-analysis, was that um, and the individuals who participated in any of these programs, they had a 13 percentage point reduction and their risk of being reincarcerated. That's a dramatic reduction in the risk. For those who participated in college programs, they were half as likely to be reincarcerated compared to others who had not participated in any type of education programs. In terms of how cost-effective it was, we, we did a very simple conservative calculation. We just compared the direct cost of education programs, the direct cost of reincarceration. And we were able to show that for every dollar spent 
on education programs, you're saving up to $5 in reincarceration costs. So that those two findings alone really helped both policymakers as well as educators start to rebuild the case why we needed to put funding back into these programs. And it is sort of a rebuilding of the case because yeah. we once knew this. Exactly, exactly. Really, when we look at the kind of the history of incarceration in the United States, there came a point before the 1994 crime bill where, where people, there was a study that, that really made the case that nothing works. So there was a feeling that there was nothing that works in terms of rehabilitation. But it really was research like this that finally said, let's step back and really evaluate the evidence from a scientific basis and was able to show indeed that these programs are effective. This was a study uh, commissioned under the Obama administration, Justice Department? Okay. Yes. We will get back to uh, okay. what might happen under a Trump administration, uh, Justice Department, in a moment. Okay. Uh, but let's go to you, Kenyatta. Um, uh, tell us your story. You're, you're a, a real-life example of somebody who was caught up in these draconian laws, the three strikes law specifically, mm -hmm. in California. <clears throat> and uh, Tell us a bit about how you got caught up and, and what happened in prison. Yeah, well, uh, in 1994, uh, I committed, uh, uh, actually, back in 1991, I committed an armed robbery. And because I took money from a safe and a cash register, they, count, they counted that as two counts of robbery, even though it happened during one you know, instance. And um, I pled guilty to that, and I signed a plea bargain for two counts of robbery. This was in 1991. I went into prison, and I did my time. And while I was there, I didn't really learn anything. I basically got out with the same mindset that I went in with and fell back in with the same crowd, same behavior. Um, within five months of my release, uh, I was pulled over on a routine traffic stop and was found being an ex-felon in possession of a firearm. I served as my third strike, and I was sentenced to 25 to life in prison. This was in 1994, going back to what you guys were mentioning about 1994. Um, I entered the prison system at 25 years old with a life sentence, and I was in deep denial about the role that I played in getting myself there. It was everybody else's fault. It was the judge. It was the DA. It was my homeboy who snitched on me. It was all these other things. Uh, about five years into my sentence, I finally realized that I was the problem. I made the choices, I made the decisions, and I got myself in prison. But with that realization, I also came to the conclusion that if I'm the problem, I must be the solution as well. And so I started taking the necessary steps to, to change my life. And I think probably the most important thing that I did when I was on the inside was learn how to ask for help. And I came from a neighborhood where, you know, only sissies and you know, sissy or punk or probably some words I shouldn't use in here, if you ask for help. And so um, I had to abandon that mindset and really start opening myself up and um, putting myself out there. And, and as a result of that, I, you know, developed relationships with people who are, you know, inmates as well and, you know, uh, counselors on the inside and volunteers who were coming into the prison who kind of took me under their wing and helped guide me in the right direction. And you know, it was through that process that I was introduced to this gentleman right here who had come to San Quentin and, um, you know, introduced me to the idea of an entrepreneurship program. And, you know, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I just used it in the wrong way in the street. And so <laughs> I saw this as a great opportunity for me to, to transform my hustle, so to speak, and learn how to do things the right way. And so in 2010, we... Um, you know, embarked on this journey of starting a, a tech uh, uh, incubator on the inside of uh, the prison walls. And um, it's a phenomenal program. I don't want to steal too much from Chris Stunner. I know he's going to talk about that, but uh, phenomenal program. I mean, I graduated from it in 2012. Um, basically, the program revolves around uh, men figuring out what they're passionate about and then how to solve a problem through the form of a business with that passion. And um, we had all, um, you know, gone through the program. Our demo day, our graduation, we call it a demo day. Um, we'd get on stage and... De demo and, day? Yeah, demo day. As so a basically, Exactly. So we'd all come up with these companies, and, and the graduation was we would pitch these companies, Shark Tank style, to um, a group of business investors, um, business people, and other um, incarcerated individuals that come to, you know, uh, be present at the graduation. So um, after that, uh, actually one of the people that Chris had brought in to uh, attend and to mentor us was a guy named Duncan Logan. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Rocket Space. And after our, our graduation, uh, I approached Mr. Logan and asked him, you know, if I got out of here tomorrow, would you hire me? 
And we said yes. And so the following year, uh, Prop 36, which amended the California Three Strikes Law, was passed. And I had done a ton of work to turn my life around on the inside. And um, I presented everything that I had done to the judge who sentenced me to 25 to life. He looked at my case again, and he said that, um, you know, that I had done the work necessary to get another chance. And so he resentenced me to seven years. I had already served 19 years up to that point. And a week later, I walked out of San Quentin a free man after 19 years. And there's more. Yeah, there's more. Uh, (laughs) About two weeks after that, um, I knocked on Mr. Logan's door and asked him if that job was still, uh, you know, available. And he said yes. And so he hired me as a paid intern. I started Rocket Space as a paid intern. And, um, you know, I just went in with this mindset that I'm just going to work really, really hard. And I don't care if I have to, you know, dump trash or make coffee or scrape gum off the floor. I'm going to be the best trash dumping, coffee making, gum scraping person that they've ever seen. And, uh, you know, with that mindset, I've been able to work my way in, in, up in the company. And now I'm the manager of campus services and, you know, helping, you know, other people who are formerly incarcerated, you know, have a smooth reentry back into society with a job. And um, it's great work. Uh, I want to get a little bit more into uh, uh, how, uh, you know, so what came first, the, the decision to uh, take responsibility for your actions, uh, the decision that you had some control over the direction of your life, yeah. or the, the introduction of, the pos- of, of education programs. In other words, the discussion today is around providing education programs uh, inside, um, but does an inmate need, did you need to make that decision take responsibility for your life before you were able to sort of take advantage of those programs? And, and Absolutely. I mean, most prisons don't really have very many programs at all, let alone any, if any. Um, but I think the, you know, the most important fundamental step is for an individual to take responsibility for what they've done. And then once you do that, then, you know, figuring out how you're going to, you know, blaze a trail forward, you know, from there, what are you going to do? So for me, that was the, that was the, you know, the sequence of events. You know, I had to take responsibility for the crimes that I committed, the impact and the harm that I created in my community, and then what can I do to amend for that? And so I had to educate myself. I had to you know, be um, you know, an upstanding person in the community that I was living in, and at the time that was prison. You know, and then figure out, you know, what I'm going to do, not just while I'm there for the, you know, for the duration of my time. And I had a life sentence, so I didn't know if I was ever going to get out. But what I would do if I got out, how I wanted to live my life. And but so. that's, that's a big mental block, that, that getting, taking the responsibility and seeing that. Now I'm going to go over to Chris, um, who until really, I think you told me, 2010, um, had a certain view of the criminal justice system sure. of criminals. Yep. Your mental block, if we're going to go along with this sort of idea here, was for you to break through and see these, these men as men who had potential. So talk a bit about, you know, your transformation in thinking sure. and, and how that happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my perception was many people that have no exposure to prison. I didn't know anybody in prison, never been in a prison, watched lockup on TV and thought that's what it was like. And uh, so I had no really intention to do anything about this. Uh, I really had no social impact initiative whatsoever. Um, so, you know, people sort of call us marauding venture capitalists. That's kind of what we were. We, we, we are perceived as, but, um, I was asked, not kindly. No, not, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I I kind of flipped on its head. I'll talk about that a little bit, but, um, I was invited into San Quentin in 2010 and, um, doing a favor to a friend. She asked me to come and she said, all these guys have this desire to start businesses. They want to learn about business. They have nobody to talk to. Would you just come in? I said, no. Um, uh, so she was persistent. Finally, I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll come in one evening. I'll talk for 30 minutes, and I'll get out, and that's my social impact checkbox for my life. Um, so I walked in, and, you know, when you, when you go in San Quentin, it's pretty daunting because it's one of the few prisons in California or in the country, really, you can walk across the prison yard. So I'm walking across the prison yard. The sun is setting. I'm like, what am I doing, right, all these guys? And so I, I, I'm in this little um, bungalow in the back, and all these guys start coming in. And this room was full of guys. And so I started talking, and this talk turned into a conversation. And that 30 minutes t- turned into three hours. And they were asking me, you know, 
how to start a business. They were giving me business plans. And the look in their eye, like we invest in early-stage entrepreneurs that want to start a business. That was the same look. Matter of fact, it was deeper. These guys had a thirst to learn and a desire to change their lives like I'd never seen before. So I left prison that night, got in my car, and my head started spinning like we could do something. I walk in the door, tell Beverly, my wife, and I'm a business partner, Beverly, we're going to start a technology incubator in San Quentin. <laughs> she said, Chris, no effing way am I going into prison. <laughs> so my first sell job was to her um, because I knew I couldn't do it myself. And um, some of you know Beverly. She's, she's um, quite you know, powerful. She's only this tall, but she's powerful. Um, and so, so we did our research, and I didn't know recidivism rates. I didn't you know cost of incarceration. I didn't know anything about it. So we did that. We realized that we're spending more in California on prison than we are in higher education, right? It's crazy. Uh, so uh, we did our research, and then I brought her back in, and we met some of the guys that I met that first time. And she saw what I said, and she said, okay, I'll do this with you. So we, um, we kind of made it up. We started with an entrepreneurship program. We did two nights a week for 40 straight weeks. Didn't tell anybody what we're doing. And we just went in. Literally, we'd be driving to prison like, what are we going to do tonight? Um, <laughs> so, but we just, you know, we work a lot with, with these entrepreneurs. So we just like, well, we'll treat them as entrepreneurs, and we'll just do this. And so we created this program where we, as Kenyatta said, we, um, we use something called a business model canvas that's used at many universities, and it's a way you develop a business. It's very inclusive where everybody's part of this process. We had five guys. Kenyatta was one, all lifers. Um, and we went through this process, and then Demo Day, um, it's pretty daunting because in San Quentin, it's a, it's, this facility is about 400 people. So it's 100 invited guests. A lot of my venture friends came, um, and... These guys had never presented to an audience before, none of these guys. Um, but we drilled them and drilled them and drilled them, and they practiced, and they just were – what I say a lot is take it from here to here, and that's where it came from. And they presented, and these guys that I worked with came up to me and said, you know, Chris, these are not great presentations. They're some of the best we've ever seen, right? So that sort of light went on like, holy crap, we, we actually, you know, have something here. Um, and I just say that first class, we had five guys. Four of those five are now free men, which is really great. I mean, they were all life, lifers at the time. I mean, you must have asked at some point, like, you're, you're investing in lifers. They're never going to get out. But you were still investing in them. Well, you know what? What really sort of changed my attitude was when I met Kenyatta. Because we didn't know anybody in prison. We had to kind of go to the prison administration and say, like, who do we recruit? And they kept saying, Kenyatta, Kenyatta. His name kept coming up. So it's like, I got to meet this guy. So I meet him. He's, you know, he's a tall dude and has a big presence. And uh, he was one of the most enthusiastic, positive guys I ever met. So I was like, how can a guy serving a life sentence be that positive? Um, so we said, well, we're going to have Kenyatta. He's going to be like, we're going to build this program around him, basically is what we did. And uh, that changed my perception of, you know, what it is to be a lifer. And, and frankly, in previous administrations under uh, Schwarzenegger and Gray Davis, we were talking about 2% lifers getting paroles. Now, under Jerry Brown, I don't know what the number is, like 30%. So when guys are coming in front of the parole board today, if they do the work, they get out. So it makes it worth now. People have hope. I think the one thing that we realized early on is that, Hope does not exist. Now it exists. And when the guys inside see Kenyatta come back inside, and we just had a demo day two weeks ago, they see Kenyatta come in in a suit and tie, and he did our keynote speech, and they're believers. And that thing just permeates across this prison and across prisons all over the country. I mean, we literally get emails and letters every day from people. Because there's hope. Yeah, just quickly. Uh, so you're not just at San Quentin now. You're where are you, and how, yeah. how extensive is it? Uh, so we're building a big facility in San Quentin. We started out in a little classroom, five guys. Uh, right now, we're building a 22,000 square foot uh, technology incubator in San Quentin. Wow. Um, where it, we'll have five classrooms there. It used to be the old print factory, and I was touring San Quentin about three years ago, and I, I kept saying, "What's over on that wall?" 
Yeah, what's over there? And so I went back there and we walked in this place and it had been dormant for 10 years. It was literally, you know, these buildings that had been from the 30s, these print machines. Um, I said, I want this building. They said, you're crazy. What do you want? I said, I want to build a technology incubator here. Um, so fast forward, uh, we're in construction now. It should be done in six months. We have, uh, we're setting up, uh, we did a whole power grid. Um, we're setting up workstations for 200 guys. We have five classrooms. Um, we're setting up wireless networks throughout. Um, so it'll be a state-of-the-art facility in San Quentin, and we really want that to be the uh, sort of the template and prototype of what we take across the country. Uh, Kenyatta, this is a sensitive question. I probably should have asked you ahead of time, but uh, I'll just throw it out. I, I, uh, I assume you can read them right now. But were you, yeah. I, I raise this because we know the, the, the illiteracy rate is so high. Mm -hmm. uh, were you among the majority of inmates who uh, had an illiteracy problem? No, um, quite the contrary. I mean, I was always good in school okay. um, where I grew up at, and at That's the time... You know, it wasn't cool to be smart. So, so I know? just I, I asked that because I want to come back to Lois and, and ask. You know, we're talking about prison education, um, extraordinarily high literacy illiteracy among inmates. Yeah. Talk a bit about that and that as a challenge to, to educating uh, inmates. There was a recent survey that was the first time that's been done of prison inmates in the United States, and it was just published in November, looking at their literacy and numeracy skills compared to the general population. And what they showed were a couple things. One is that about 30% of the current U.S. prison population in federal and state prison have less than a high school degree. When they look at their literacy rates, about a third are, um, are performing at very, have, have very low literacy um, rates. When they look at numeracy skills, it's about half. So that's one of the challenges that we face in terms of how do we then address educational deficits and get them to a point where they can then really partake of not only the whole spectrum of educational opportunities from um, high school equivalency, GED prep, but to go on to participate in programs like this, participation, participate in vocational training programs, and also start working on earning associate degrees. In today's economy, it's not sufficient to have a GED to get a job. You really need to think about having some level of college behind you in order to be marketable. Uh, so, so literacy is a huge challenge. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the other challenges in terms of uh, getting more education programs, successful ones, into prisons? What, um, what you may not realize is, is a couple things. One is when we look at departments of corrections across the United States, they will invest in both adult basic ed, so uh, remedial education, and they will invest in programs that help you get your high school fluency degree. But that's where it starts to end. When it, um, it's hit and miss in terms of what type of vocational training programs they provide. And also, for college programs, it's really up to the individual or their families or philanthropy to support those programs. So what it means is that when we look at the, pr the prison population, there's a huge demand. They very much are hungry to continue their education. But as, as, as you mentioned, there's really limited programming. And so that's one of the big issues is how do we start really thinking about providing a continuum of education opportunities now in, in our prison system. Uh, you described a, a, a big demand. Um, yeah. Is that really true? Because we, we, think, of, we think of a lot of inmates who've, who, and we were even talking, Kenyatta, earlier, a, a lot have, have sort of given up. Are you, are you saying that there's a huge demand, or are you just saying that we are not meeting the demand that is there right now? Well, from the survey that I just mentioned, um, what they found is that um, about 24% of, of individuals said they were currently in a program that allowed them to work towards a certificate or some type of degree. But 70% said they wanted to be in education programs, but they didn't have access. So there really is a big demand out there. Okay. Um, Let's go back to you, Chris. Um, talk about uh, your interaction with um, uh, California Department of uh, Rehabilitation, Corrections and Rehabilitation, CDCR, the mm -hmm. rehabilitation they added under Schwarzenegger. Um, and their attitude, their resistance, their acceptance, you know, their attitude toward you, know, you and this idea of, of expanding education programs. You know, it's evolved over time. 
I think they were sort of re reluctantly giving us permission to come to prison. They thought we'd probably go away after a while. Um, that, that attitude's changed dramatically over the last seven years, I have to say. Um, you know, I, I think part of it was us proving that we were <laughs> real, that we really wanted to do this, uh, and also showing results, showing that people did care. And just to address the demand, you know, it's, it's become the most aspirational program in the country, Last Mile is. And, um, you know, it's a, a pretty high bar, but the results are, are really amazing. Even in San Quentin, we're, we're going to be in five prisons here in California soon, but in San Quentin, uh, there is a prison university that Kenyatta, I'll, I'll toot his horn a little bit, in his class he was valedictorian in his class, so I'll give you that. Um, but um, they have a, 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 you can get your associate of arts degree. We use that as a prerequisite to get in the last mile. The registrations at San Quentin have gone up 40% for university to qualify to get in. On the other hand, since we started to today, the incident rate has gone down 30% because we have a no, uh, we have a zero tolerance policy, which means you have no 115s, which is an infraction. You cannot have a 115 for two years prior to um, applying for the program. What's so a typical 115? So 115 is a rules violation report and basically what? just breaking any kind of rule, and there's okay. a ton of rules inside prison. <laughs> so it's really to, easy to break one. It doesn't necessarily have to be hitting somebody. It no, could, no, just no. You could, you no, know. I mean, they're, they're, they have a <clears throat> yellow out-of-bound line. You can go out-of-bounds and get a 115. Okay, okay. So, um, so guys are staying in bounds, which is really cool, yeah. right? And so these, these are things that we had no idea would be downstream impact, right? And now we have a relocation program where if we have an inmate who's in a remote facility and he's pre-qualified, he can transfer to San Quentin. So all of a sudden you're starting this aspirational in prisons, as Kenyatta said, they have no programs. A lot of these guys have no hope. But if they're good citizens and they show desire, they can be transferred to San Quentin. So that's changing the whole dynamic of the prison system today. Can I also add on Please. top of that, too? I mean, and even on a deeper level, too, I mean, prison is a very racially charged and racially segregated environment. You know, whites over here, blacks over here, you know, Mexicans over here, Asians over there. And programs like The Last Mile have really changed the culture on the prison yard, yep. where you have people from different ethnic backgrounds, you know, different gangs on the streets just coming together and talking about entrepreneurship. I mean, that's something that, that's really, really powerful. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, in San Quentin, there's a big door. It's a big metal door you have to go through to get into where our classroom is. And you check your biases at the door. So we take every ethnicity. So me being ignorant about prison, I'm like, we're going to you know, make this multicultural. I'm like, no. If you go in the yard, <laughs> the whites are there and the blacks are there. I mean, truly is segregated. I said, no way. We're not going to do that. So we have every ethnicity in our class. We literally have guys that are pair programming, which means you work together on a computer together. We have a crip and a skinhead working together. They would have killed their so themselves on the outside or each other. They're working together, and they're, they're getting along. Because it was important for us to not only teach technology, but understand the dynamics of working in business when they get out. So it was really important that it's working, and it's, it's starting to change that culture on the prison yard. What's interesting to me is, is I was focusing a bit earlier on the idea of needing to make the decision, take responsibility for your life, uh, preceding uh, the, taking the steps toward education. Um, and what you're, you're describing essentially is, you know, if, if you see some light at the end of the tunnel, you're more apt to make that decision, to take responsibility for your actions, to realize you, you can make some choices and make some decisions. And I imagine when you entered, and you already described this, in the 90s, there was just absolutely no light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, it was really tough. I mean, they had just taken away, you know, the college programs and stuff, and you had a bunch of just really angry men just walking around the yard looking at each other, and it's, it's only a matter of time before something happens. Um, for myself, I came to the realization that, wow, I could literally die in prison. I don't want to die in prison. And if I do die in prison, I don't want my legacy to be one of a thief or a convict or a criminal. There's something that I can do right here, right now to change that. And so that's what I started working on. And that's really what inspired me to, to, to make the changes that I made in my life. Uh, just out of curiosity, did you have any Mexican mafia members, uh, I mean, recognized guys who were, yeah. okay. Uh, and then well, did they, then, I mean, this is, this is careful. I know this is, you have to be careful talking about this uh, stuff. No, it's fine. 
Uh, <laughs> a lot of room. Go ahead. Right, Ruff? Um, well, you can't have a gang affiliation to be part of the program. And uh, San Quentin, you can't have a gang affiliation being general population. You have to be in uh, the shoes, segregated housing. Uh, we're in Ironwood Prison in the, in the desert. It's a level 2-3. Um, and if you're not familiar with levels, they start at level four when you, like Kenyatta was a level four when he first was incarcerated, which means you're in supermax or um, high security. And then you have to work your way down to get to level two. San Quentin now is level two. Um, that's where a lot of the programs are. But uh, in Ironwood, we're in level two, three, and there's a lot of, it's a lot of Hispanic gangs. And uh, I was walking the yard when we first started it, and uh, one of the OGs came up to me and said, and basically said, you're good. You know, you know, the guys that are in the program are making that community proud. So he blessed me on the yard, <laughs> which was, you know, it really helps, right? Uh, so, so you're here with us today. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that, again, it's learning all this stuff. I had no idea what was going on, right? Um, but um, it's really, um, you know, you have to understand how that culture works. And... You know, the, the idea of being in the neighborhood and becoming a LeBron James is changing to becoming Mark Zuckerberg. And these guys talk about it in prison. It's like their aspiration is to be Mark Zuckerberg, not LeBron James. Nothing against LeBron, but they can actually get there, right? They can get there. And there are very few billionaire basketball players. They kind of realize that, too. Um, so um, you can get there through technology. And, and we've taken guys. We have a guy, Jason Jones who came in prison with a third uh, grade education. And now he's a programmer. How's that happen? So, uh, uh, Lois, uh, just bring us a little bit back to reality here because I think we're, we're probably dealing with a segment of the prison population uh, that, ha that is a little more open, a little more prepared to, to, to change. Uh, we know a lot of the prison population you know, may not be so willing. It's a tough group. To, to, to change. I love the hope in your eyes right now. But, but, um, but, I'll you know, challenge you I, on that. I, yeah, well, I like it because, yeah. you know, I, we've, you've dealt actually probably with many more inmates than I have, uh, but I've dealt with a few. And, and it, this, so I'm, I, statistically, kind of can you give us a picture of, of the inmate population, what, what you, your research has found in terms of, I don't know, the, the challenges that are out there that we may not be aware of uh, and the opportunities? Well, well, certainly we talked about the problem of low educational attainment. This is also a population with um, a high degree of learning disabilities. So when instructors go into the prison setting, they invariably talk about they may have a classroom with very mixed skills, but also a fair number who are dealing with learning disabilities. So that's one of the issues. Um, I think the other thing that is, is listening to you is that one of the things that it <coughs> For many of these individuals, they may be the first time that there's someone in their family who got a GED or much less went to college. And so so there's, so there's, it's really, in some ways, they're paving a, a way that they don't have much experience with or, or that their family doesn't necessarily support or, or understand. So that's part of, part of the challenges that um, they face. But I think it's, um, I think it's really that when we talk about these programs and you start, um, you mentioned about how it changes the prison culture. We've heard that time and time again. You, you have individuals now who start seeing these kinds of programs and start saying, gee, I'm going to work hard on my getting my GED because I want to be able to apply for this or I want to be eligible for this. So part of it is starting to put hope again into the, into the culture itself. One of the things that, that there's um, well-known researchers like Pam Lattimore that's really trying to move the field forward on is realizing when we look at an individual, we have to think about their entire needs, not just whether or not they need a GED or a skills training, but really they may be dealing with um, substance abuse issues. They may be dealing with uh, exposure to violence. They need you know, mental health treatment, et cetera. So it's really thinking more broadly about how do we help individuals kind of address the full range of needs so that they are ready and, and able to really participate in these programs. So there's definitely the recognition that we have to be smarter about how we integrate those kinds of services. Uh, we'd like to open it up to questions. 
Would Lois or Chris, would you address the issue of financial literacy when they're developing a business plan, what experience they have or what lack is revealed as they're developing it? Or did it was it addressed in some of the uh, surveys that you did? Uh, well, yeah, there's a big lack of financial literacy. I mean, uh, you know, we're trying to teach them basics about business, how to operate business, um, even how to be personally financially literate as well. Um, it's, a, it's a big problem. It's interesting, in San Quentin there's a guy named Curtis Carroll, his, his nickname is Wall Street, and, and he's a character. So I'm gonna pitch you one thing too, because you pitched yours over there, I'll pitch mine. Um, so, no, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, you can go to tlmradio.org and you can hear some of the uh, interviews with some of the guys, it's it's a, a series that we did with Sirius Radio. It's a partnership there, and you can hear Wall Street. You need to listen to this guy. It's pretty phenomenal. Um, but basically, he came in with a he was illiterate. Came in and realized that if he was going to get out, he needed to understand how to make money, and he decided it was the stock market. So he created something called a column theory, and um, he he actually uses feel, if you remember Trading Places, if you remember that movie, it's kind of like that, um, where it's, you know, trading pork belly on things that are completely out there, you know, how he's making decisions. But Wall Street has actually beat the S&P the last five years. Um, <laughs> so um, he actually teaches financial literacy inside San Quentin. And here's a guy who was illiterate, learned about it. He's been incarcerated for 20 years. Uh, he had a 54-to-life sentence. Uh, he was sentenced to... Uh, as a result of prop, uh, uh, Proposition two, uh, SB 260, um, he was, a, he was a, not an adult. He was a minor when he was, uh, he was 17 years old. So he goes in front of the board in four years now instead of 54 years. Um, but that's a case where they're using his curriculum now in other prisons. It's pretty amazing. But, uh, but that's, yeah, it's very basic, and most guys don't have that, that base knowledge of financial literacy. Can I add something to that also is that, from what I found uh, is that myself and most of the people that were experiencing some kind of financial illiteracy is because we grew up seeing money only being used one way, and that's spend it. You know, as soon as my mom got money to take care of me and my two brothers, she spent it right away. There was no money to ever be saved. So I grew up thinking that that's all you do with money is spend it. I never knew how to invest it. I never knew how to plan it and make it grow. And so it's programs like the one that Wall Street is coming up with to help educate the population a little bit more. And um, it's, it's, it's awesome the way that yeah. things are turning around. Yeah. Next question. Uh, you had a Charlie Wilson's war uh, when you went into San Quentin. I mean, you were expecting to see animals and you yeah. saw human beings yeah. and it got to you. You're an influencer. So how do you get other influencers like you to have that experience because if there was a sea of people like you making yeah. this happen, it'll happen. Well, that was really important. So I think we have not done any sort of promotion. What we wanted to do, and I never asked for money, we, we said, if we're going to do it, we're going to self-fund this. So we decided, Beverly and I said, we're going to self-fund this. We're going to ask for people's time, not their money. So I went to VCs that I knew. I went to CEOs of companies that I knew, and I brought them inside. right? And we started an author series. Guy Kawasaki was a well-known tech author. Um, was a friend of mine, I said, Guy, I'm going to get their book called Enchantment, and then you're going to come in afterwards and meet these guys. And we've done, we have had 16 authors do that. Um, so these influencers, and that's really where that change of perception happens. I can talk about it, you can see it on the news, but you have to go in and see it. Mark Zuckerberg came in two years ago, and that was pretty phenomenal uh, because obviously he's one of the leaders in the world today you know, one of the most richest guys in the world and has huge influence, he came in. And um, it's funny because before he came in, the guy, I screw with the guys a lot, just joking <laughs> around in a sense. And I said in front of a group like this, I said, guys, if you could meet one person, what would, and I knew Mark was like 20 minutes away. And it was, <laughs> it was Larry Ellison, Mark Zuckerberg. It was Richard Branson, Mark Zuckerberg. You know, it was Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, so they all wanted, and he walks in 20 minutes later, and their eyes are bugging out of their heads. <laughs> but that's, so now we're working with Facebook on their, um, their employment initiative. We're trying to change the employment so they can hire and uh, form the incarcerated. 
Um, Stuart Butterfield came in. He's the CEO of Slack, which is one of the fastest-growing companies in in, um, in Silicon Valley. So it's it's not me. It's me getting guys like that. And that has a huge impact. And when they start hiring, it's going to change the whole trajectory of how things are. You know, what's cool is, you know, we, we still have a fairly small group. We have 20 uh, returned citizens, zero recidivism. They're all doing phenomenally well. And Kenyatta is, is like the mayor of rocket space. I mean, <laughs> these guys have such a desire when they come in. They, they are some of the best employees that these people have ever hired because they have something to prove, right? And we put them through the ringer. I mean, it's hard to graduate. But when they do, they have an obligation. And they also sign an oath. That's oath for life. And Beverly and I were the first to sign in front of the guys. We signed this for life. So they sign it for life. And it's not just when they're inside. They have to do the same thing when they get out. And that's where the influence really happens. Uh, at the same time, you mentioned the business committee, I think, in our, in our conversation over the phone a few days ago, uh, generally not interested in, in this kind of work. In, in other words... You're in a particular kind of work in technology, venture capitalism. Uh, so talk maybe a bit about that business community versus the larger business community. I mean, people just, what's the mood? The mood's really receptive. It's you know, receptive. It's, okay. Oh, yeah. And, and what's really surprised me is we have 90 volunteers just for San Quentin out of San Francisco. They're from every tech company you can imagine and companies beyond. And they're mostly millenn millennials. You know, and, and that's what's really encouraging to me. It's this, it's this uh, group of people that have social responsibility that are going to be the leaders of tomorrow. Most of the technology companies in, in San Francisco and beyond all have social impact initiatives. You know, Salesforce has theirs, Google, LinkedIn. They all have these social impact initiatives. And, and when they're recruiting, it's important for people they hire, for the people that are, that are getting hired, <laughs> to know that that company has a social impact. I was remiss in not mentioning this earlier, but uh, we were going to be joined by Assemblyman uh, uh, Joan Sawyer, who, uh, Sawyer Jones, Joan Sawyer, I think, I, sure. I think I'm going back and forth on that. Uh, and, and he was going to talk a bit about the political climate in Sacramento. Obviously, uh, we're, we're in a new era now where we're rethinking criminal justice, uh, and we've rolled back some of the draconian laws. Uh, but he, he was describing an atmosphere in Sacramento where some you know, are just waiting to once again uh, use fear and uh, you know come rushing back in with with tough laws that throw a lot of people uh, back in prison. So uh, he described an atmosphere in Sacramento that remains somewhat tenuous on this issue that could kind of go either way. But what's interesting to me in this discussion here and obviously in the the last few elections, clearly the electorate you know is not interested in that right now. So we're it feels like we're out of the era where you could. You could run for the state assembly or state uh, senate and get elected based on a tough on crime agenda. Uh, although he says in Sacramento, you know, th th there are still remnants of that those sentiments that that, that linger. Um, but we're regretting that he didn't uh, wasn't here tonight. But he uh, he uh, had certainly expressed that sentiment uh, a few days ago in our conversation. Let's go to an, another question. So I used to teach in the prison as a business and entrepreneurship for, instructor for a few years. And one thing I want to start with, I'm a huge fan of prison education. And I, that face that you saw, like when, you know, Chris, when the, the entrepreneurs, like they, they get it that, and, and our program is a little different. They had, like ours were all four years from their release date or less. And so my, our education director charged us with making sure that we could train them to either be entrepreneurs or be assistant managers or managers when they were released. And so it was, it was such a great program to be a part of. The, the question I had, which is kind of a moral thing for me, there were some times when I would go home and I would feel this kind of emptiness. And I, I want to ask you, Kenyatta, I was afraid that I was teaching inmates the, to be better criminals when they got out. And I, I saw so many, that light come up, but I saw a lot of them that these are drug dealers and these are that. And, I, um, you know, and as much as I tried to instill these moral concepts in them and that ability to, you know, when they get out to, to perform well, that, that kind of stuck with me at times. Um, how much of that did you see or can you kind of speak to that a little? Well, I think the, the people in prison, what a lot of people forget about is that they are people. Many of them have children that are watching them, that they want to come home to, that they want to do better for. Many of them have families that they need to take care of. I think that the overwhelming majority of people that are in prison want to get out and want to do better. They just don't know how. And so what's so powerful about The Last Mile is that it provides a framework for change transforming the hustle. We built a really 
a robust, empowered, connected community, people from the business community, volunteers that are coming in, you know, um, uh, uh, CEOs of companies, you know, they're willing to, to do the next step, which is provide opportunities when people come home. So I told you guys a little bit about Duncan Logan. I mean, he, when you talk about, you know, being courageous, I mean, this guy is running a, a tech company, but he took a chance on me because he believed in me. And he saw something in me that, you know, that he's seen in a lot of other people too. We've hired other people besides myself to come work at Rocket Space. But my point is that I think when people understand that they, they actually, you know, the people that are inside, they do have greater aspirations and greater hopes to do better things. I'm not saying that there aren't people that are sitting in there that are thinking about, you know, doing the next caper when they get out because there are people like that. But there are other people in there too that, that want to do better and, I commend you on your work that you that you did in the prison and jail that you went to because I'm sure that you helped a lot of people, you know, help turn their lives around. So, you know, at the end of the day, we're still people. We still do have dreams, hopes, and aspirations. And when we get support from people like you, the likelihood of us people coming out of incarcerated settings turn their life around, you know, it increases dramatically. So thank you for that. How much is uh, age a factor? Age is a huge factor. It's a huge factor. I mean, when you're young and you only have 16, two or three, you know, and you just run around with your homies or whatever. I mean, that's that's one thing. But as you get a little bit older, you get a little wiser. You know, you start thinking about your life and your legacy. You know, I, it took me. I went in when I was 25. Um, I didn't really come to that realization that I was the solution until I was 30 years old. And so I'm 48 now. And, you know, from from 30 to where I'm at now, I mean, a, a lot has happened since then. So. Average age of the guys in your program, uh, Chris, tend to be what? It's, you know, we've, we've got some younger. Because we're in San Quentin, um, as I said, it takes a while to get to where you are. So they have to serve some time. So it's, you know, it's probably late 30s. Yeah. And, and in your research? I, I was going to say the data supports that. And, and what people don't realize is most people age out of the criminal behavior. So by the time they're like 30s and the 30s, 40s, they really are focused on they're, they're done. They want to turn their life around. They want opportunities. Um, one of the things you mentioned is that most people don't realize about half of the prison population are parents. And so what we find is that the, the children, the, the, their family is a huge motivator for many of them for wanting to find a way that they can, that they can turn their life around. So, that, so that's the other thing is to realize is that this is a population that they're not the extreme axe murder types, but they really are people that may have made a mistake and, and are serving their time for it. But, but they really are trying to turn their life around. So. I practice clinically at the L.A. County Jail, and my question to all of you is, as legislative reform shifts the burden of reentry from the state system to the county and jail system, can you speak to successful models around educating people who are coming out of jail and, and how, what the vision would look like and what the roadmap would look like in the future? Uh, Chris, we, we talked to you. We were in the L.A. County Jail at one point. Yeah, we did a test program there. The, the challenge is that it's a very transient population. You know, um, we were in the Twin Towers, pretty rough place to be. Um, and we started with 18 guys. We ended up with three just because they were rotating them around so much. So... Um, you know, we, we have an intention to come back in Pitches, which is in North County, as a uh, longer term. So that with real, realignment, some of the guys who were in state prison now are at county. Um, so that's something we'd like to do. But that the situation at the time just didn't work. Uh, Ross Rao was here. He was one of our um, one of our uh, guys there who was helping the program and. Uh, you know, it's, it was rough just because we, we didn't have enough length of time with that group. So, it, again, it's something we'd like to address at, at, a, at some point in the future. Just out of curiosity, what about the attitude of L.A. County jail officials versus uh, CDCR officials? Say it. Any COs here? Uh, uh, it's different. Uh, I'll be frank. It's different. It's a rough place. Yeah, county jail is a rough place. Uh, the attitude's different. I just think because the population's different. I mean, the... The COs there are just getting hassled all the time, and it's sort of a mutual thing. So it's it's pretty rough. In well, in, uh, in prison, it's a bit different. You you are able to see the same CO over and over again, correctional officer, and and you build a relationship there. In county jail, it's not that way. Yeah, and we we just had a sheriff who now is of course uh, 
uh, awaiting sentencing, uh, who, who espoused uh, educational-based incarceration. I mean, his head was in the right place mm -hmm. at one point. Yes. You know, he was, he was perhaps in, uh, uh, an ineffective manager and maybe yeah. lacked the real motivation to do it. Yeah. Well, he was there when, when we were there, you know, and, and I had spent time with him. Yeah. Um, you know, didn't but know, didn't know everything else was going on there, but uh, sure. but he was generally supportive. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Next question. So hearing you talk about how you were able to expand it to five different prisons mm -hmm. is something that that's a dream for me and that keeps me up at night. So can you speak to how um, you were able to scale that and working with probation to do that and um, speak to the challenges and both the opportunities that probation saw with you um, for that as well? Thank you. Yeah, you know, I think part of it is my job today is to make sure that, that those in Sacramento are educated in what we're trying to do. So it's not a mystery and it's not a surprise when we come up with a new idea, which kind of scares them sometimes. Um, but uh, so the scaling issue, you know, I think for me, I always had this, this, this goal of getting to technology. Entrepreneurship was a path to that. If I went the first day and said I want to start a tech incubator, they would have thrown me out. But I, I was able to sort of get their trust along the way. And um, we're scaling it. And, and the reason this works so well is because coding can be done anywhere, right? Um, so we set up, we basically have a virtual environment. If you go in our classroom, it looks like everybody's online, which you can't be directly when you're in prison. But we set up a whole um, simulated environment. Um, we have servers in there connected to the internet, and we can update it on a daily basis. And the guys work in the simulator. Um, so that's something that we take across the country, and that's we're really in the process of building that right now. Uh, we're actually putting the team together. Andrew Mello sitting in the back as part of that team. Um, but we're packaging the curriculum that we can take to any prison. It's all self-contained. And then we do virtual instruction. So we have a studio in San Francisco that we can broadcast into prisons all across the country. So we do remote instruction. Uh, so that's – I was able to sell that into CDCR, and they realized it didn't cost a lot. Uh, it's pretty cost effective. Uh, so the cost per inmate right now, fully loaded to start it, it's about four to five thousand dollars a year. So when you think about, it, you're spending sixty thousand a year to warehouse. You spend four to five thousand dollars to get them prepared. Like these guys finish a year program; it's two six month uh, tracks. They can get a job. Uh, so it's pretty cheap investment to do that. And and I think that's why the receptiveness. Um, was uh, to where it is today because of the cost and the ease and the virtual nature of what we're doing. In the small group you've had so far, have you helped each and everyone get a job with yes. connections? Yeah. Okay. So that would be a scale issue too if you start dealing with hundreds and maybe more. Yeah, well, you know, again, uh, programming is, uh, there's a stat that says that by 2020 we'll have a million open computer programming jobs, unfilled. So if you, you know, if you train these guys and, and the, the, the talent level we have is truly amazing that the level they're getting to, that they will get jobs. We won't need the, as many B1, uh, B1 visas. Or is it H1? That's a whole other <laughs> subject. Well, but I mean, but that's, that's I mean, there's yeah. something going on there. Yeah. yeah. Kenyatta, you spoke so movingly about being around 30 years old in prison and realizing that you had to take responsibility for your actions. But I'm wondering where you grew up and looking back, what environmental factors may have also been responsible for those actions and pushed you to a path where armed robbery uh, not only was an option, but seemed an appealing option? That's a great question. You know, um, in the environment where I grew up, I saw a lot of people who were, um, you know, hustling in the street and doing all kinds of different things to, to make money. Um, I saw the impact that drugs and crack cocaine especially had in the community where I came from. Um, I saw people impacted by using drugs, and I saw people impacted by selling drugs. And people that were using drugs, it seemed like they were experiencing, like, and we were talking about this earlier, experiencing some, like, really, really just, like, crazy consequences. And the people that were selling drugs, I saw reaping, like, rewards. They had money. They had cars. They had these different things. And so... Um, and I also mentioned that I was good in school, but it wasn't cool to be smart in school, you know. Um, so I kind of dumbed myself down and hung around with a crowd that was, um, you know, into the street life. And, you know, that, to take it even a little bit deeper, I mean, my, my father abandoned my brother and my two brothers and my mother and I 
And I grew up with like this hole inside of me because he never came back. I mean, he never sent a Christmas card or a birthday gift or anything. And so, you know, after a while, without any kind of answers and without any kind of proper, you know, way to process this trauma that I was experiencing, I started thinking there was something wrong with me. And so I started doing things to make myself feel better. I would like, um, I was reaching for these external things to fill this internal void that I was, that I was feeling that I was trying to work my way through. And that took me down this path of making all these bad choices. I was always a smart kid, but I was just dealing, I was in so much pain myself, it was hard for me to work it all out. And so that eventually led to me dropping out of school, me starting to sell drugs, me picking up a gun and committing an armed robbery. So the work that I did in prison was really important because it, it helped me understand, you know, what the causative factors of my crimes were. How did I go from being this little kid who wanted his dad to this out of control adult who was running around with a gun, you know? And so um, I'm really thankful for the, for the opportunity that I've had to really understand that. I think that there are a lot of other men and women who are inside prison, maybe not even in prison yet, that are in the community right now that are experiencing the same things that I went through. They just don't have anybody to talk to. So that's why I do what I do. That's why I share my story the way that I do, because hopefully it can get people talking and understand that, hey, you're not alone. There are people out here who are experiencing the same thing, and maybe you can get some help, too. One last question. I guess this is it. Thank you. First, I have to say this is a fantastic panel, so thank you all uh, for sharing your stories. Um, So um, I want to build on what you were just talking about and kind of push it one step farther. Um, But first by saying um, I run a nonprofit organization that works uh, with L.A. County Probation and delivers educational programs within uh, a camp. And we do arts education, and we do um, case management, and we do uh, GED. And I want to do what you're doing, which is uh, business education and financial literacy and things like that. And so my question is, what does a more comprehensive system look like that builds on what you were just saying about the causative factors of understanding what was impacting you at a deep emotional level? Um, And are there different multipliers for different kinds of educational programs that we could offer that I would have to imagine would include soft skills development and therapy that goes beyond programming and kind of the harder disciplines. Uh, Do you have thoughts about that, about what a robust system would look like, which would really rehabilitate people? I mean, I'll give a comment just on the basic to start with. Um, When we started the program, uh, one of the guys in the first two months came up to me and said, Chris, I don't know if I'll ever get a job from this, but for the first time, someone's treating me like a human being, right? So we start at that level, you know? And then uh, building from there, um, at least my opinion is that we have to have baseline education. It has to, you know, we have to be able to um, le- allow people to get at least a GED, start getting some literacy in prison. Um, you can do it now. I mean, we're, we're talking about getting la- um, tablets in prison and having those as tools for education. Um, And I think there's a huge population. We think that about 20% of the incarcerated population would be candidates for our program. So if you think about the number of people that are in prison today, it's 2.3 million. I don't know what the the number is. Right? 20% of that? hundreds of thousands of people that would be impacted by this. And they don't have to be coders. To your point, soft skills certainly help. Entrepreneurship program, we have design element, we have quality assurance that we're teaching. So it, it can be all levels, but um, there's no reason why this can't be everywhere because it's really cost effective. We've shown that. And if you start with baseline education as a starting point, you identify those that have desire, you identify those Kenyattas out there that have desire, and you pick them. He shouldn't have, we shouldn't have waited another 14 years, right? We should have known five years in. Identify that guy and start. And, and I think that's where it is. It's the identification and the acknowledgement that people are willing to change and getting them, that, them at that moment. I was just going to say the, the other thing related to that is there's a real recognition when individuals go into prison, they get assessed about three months in about what, what educational needs they have, what kind of vocational training skills they have, et cetera. But what we don't think about is the entire per, the person. We don't think about, if, are, are they ready to really benefit from those programs? Do they actually need first to have help dealing with some of the trauma and some of the other issues that they're dealing with? 
so that they can go into these programs and be able to focus and t make the most out of it. So there's a real movement now among researchers to try to think more, more holistically about how do we prepare individuals and think about sequencing programs that really helps them. Yeah. So. Kenyatta, you want to add anything on that? I think they covered it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's it for questions. Um, I'll just say, uh, I'll end by saying, uh, <clears throat> so California's embarked on this rethinking of cr criminal justice, um, and it's made two promises, the way I see it, um, to uh, reduce sentences, uh, to uh, not throw as many people in prison. Uh, but there's a second promise that has been so far unfulfilled, and that is we are going to help folks more. We're going to provide rehabilitation, the job training, the anger management, the drug rehab programs. And, you know, it, to me, it seems like your program and other efforts by other business people uh, who have the means to, to provide it and the education and the resources uh, are going to be key to fulfilling that second promise. Is that about right? Yeah, you know, I think it was really important for us to... Uh, to show that public-private pri partnerships uh, can work. And so we have a joint venture with the California uh, Department of Corrections today in San Quentin. We actually have a web development shop inside San Quentin where the guys are working for outside companies and doing uh, development work. They're insourcing into San Quentin as, as opposed to sending it uh, you know, overseas. Um, and that's a public-private partnership. I have a lease on that space for 10 years with a 10-year option. So we have the ability to have that space for 20 years. And uh, these guys are getting paid the highest wage in the U.S. prison. They're getting paid $16.79 an hour as opposed to 50 cents an hour, right? Um, so they, they, they get a savings because you get gate money. Many guys walk out with $200 gate money. It's hard to start your life again with $200. So... Um, so it's really important that we do that, that we show that public-private can work. And we hope to be a poster child for that. Um, and I never thought in my life that I would be working with a government agency in a business, <laughs> but it's working. It really is. And um, so, you know, I'm a convert, and, uh, I, you know, I'm going to be evangelizing from from day till I die about the ability for us to do this because I think it's that <laughs> That's important because private has to be part of it. Public cannot yeah. do it alone. Let's give our panel a big uh, thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, Visit us online at www.rand.org events.